0: Are aflame. Let me humble my pride and call on Your name. Keep my faith renewed. My eyes only on Thee, and let me be on this earth. What You want me.
1: They that wait upon the low Shall renew their stream
0: They shall mount up with wings
2: High school senior, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, Your place of ministry will be Washington, D.C. The Holy Spirit said to me, You're going to minister in Washington, D.C. Now, that was totally improbable because I was a farm boy. And my two brothers, older brothers, had gone to a university in the country, and Springs, Michigan, and everybody expected me in the family to follow suit and go to Andrews University in Michigan because associated with Andrews University was a seminary. And they thought I should go to the college and then continue right straight through my graduate degree in seminary. But the Holy Spirit said, you're going to Washington. So it caused quite a stir in my family when I told them I can't go to the country, I have to go to the city. And I'm going to Washington. And my dad An old-time farmer just threw his hands up and said, Ray, that wicked city? I said, Nineveh was a wicked city, Dad. He said, you're right, son, go to Washington. So I came to Washington, D.C. I ministered preaching and teaching as a theology student. I did street ministry, um, Logan School area, street preaching in Georgetown. And then I went on to seminary on a scholarship from Pennsylvania. So when I returned from the seminary, my first church assignment was in Allentown, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And I said, Lord, I thought I was supposed to go to Washington, D.C. And then I was moved from Allentown, Bethlehem after one year. I had to serve a one-year internship. I was given my first district. And it was a little district in western Pennsylvania, Putneyville, Du Bois, and Clearfield. And so I was a circuit pastor, 200-mile circuit every week to preach in these churches, and midweek a 200-mile circuit to do prayer meetings. And I said, Lord, I thought you told me I was supposed to be in Washington, D.C. And I was utterly discontent in these three churches. A Putneyville church, the youngest person in the church was probably, I don't know, 65, 67, 69. He was an old man. He was the kid in the church, and I was afraid a good case of the flu would take the whole church out. And I said, Lord, I thought I was supposed to minister in Washington, D.C. to young people. And I sat in that district month after month miserable i lived by the way i have to tell you this i lived on rattlesnake road and my neighbor would have five or six rattlesnakes hung up on his on his fence to let us know that it was really rattlesnake road and i said lord what am i doing out here in the country you told me washington dc i kept praying kept waiting and then I finally said, if I have to be here, Lord, I'd like to at least have some fun. What can I do that would be fun? Well, Dubois was the biggest city, thirty thousand if you counted the wildlife that was in it. And I got this crazy idea, start a coffee house, a Christian coffee house in Dubois. And so I found a building, started paying rent on it, tried to raise the money to get it renovated, and I just couldn't do it. I worked for a year and could not accomplish anything. And finally, after a year, I went back to the Lord and I said, Lord, you told me a coffee house. I've tried my best and I can't do it. This is miserable. Get me out of this town. Send me to Washington, D.C. Well. That week, I, quote, by chance, met a high school counselor. And I told her about my idea for a coffee house. And she said, Pastor, that's a wonderful idea. If you'll meet me, and she gave me the time and the place, I think we can get a building. I said, okay. So I met her. She took me to the headquarters of the Dubois town police. We went in and saw the captain, and she said, this pastor has a fabulous idea. We have a problem in Dubois. There is a circle in Dubois, and every Saturday night, there's a stream of young people driving their hot cars around and around and around that circle. This pastor has an idea that we could get them off the streets. I want you to listen to him. And so I told the captain about my idea of doing a coffee house. He said, Pastor, that's the best idea I've heard. We will give you rent-free the building for you to have the coffee house in. Before I knew it, I had a coffee house, a Christian coffee house in Dubois, Pennsylvania, jammed with hundreds of kids coming from all over, all the neighboring towns, Their kids came. Now, I have to tell you, today I would not consider all the sets of music that we had those kids do very kosher. But you understand who I was dealing with. And I finally said, okay, Lord, I'm happy to stay in Dubois. I'm not going to do much in Clearfield. I'm not going to do much in Putneyville. I'm going to center everything right here in Dubois until you move me. That week, I received a phone call. I'd just gotten this coffee house started. It was just successful. I got a call from Washington, D.C., from a pastor. He said, Ray, we have a coffee house in Georgetown. It's on M Street. We'd like you to come and be the director. Would you be willing to come and interview with the board? Came and interviewed with the board, and it was about, 30 very sophisticated businessmen, physicians, and I'm a country boy. And I finally, at the end of the interview, I said to these aristocratic men, wealthy men, I said, look, gentlemen, I'm a country boy. You better look for a city boy to do your job. I can't do it. And I left. And the Lord rebuked me. He said, Do you think you can go and head a coffee house in Washington, DC, and be successful? Of course you can't. But you can if I go with you. So you're in timeout. And it was my first introduction to God putting me in timeout. Now I have to tell you, God has put me in timeout many times since then. I don't like it any more now than I liked it then. Got up one morning that week. And the Lord said, call and cancel your engagements with the coffee house. Let the high school take it over. The high school counselor will now be in charge. You resign. He said, Lord, it's the only thing keeping me alive in this city. It's an opportunity for your gospel. It's an opportunity for your church. He didn't say a word. I called. I resigned. He couldn't believe our ears. She said, you start this, it's successful, and now you're quitting, Pastor? I said, yes, I'm moving. I'm going to Washington, D.C. For the next month, I was on timeout. Some of you all think it's rough when you've got timeout for five minutes from your mom or dad. God will put you on timeout for a year, or five years, or ten years. I've been on timeout again. 25 years. I'm on time out right now. That's why it's just a little small gathering of people that God has brought together. Because I'm on time out. I know where I'm going next. He's already told me where we're going. And my response to him was, you've got to be kidding me. I can't do that. He said, time out. Remember what happened to John the Baptist's father when he said, Prove to me, Gabriel, that this is going to happen. All right, you won't be able to speak until after the birth. You're in time out. What happened was for the next month, the Lord directed me to spend every day on a high hill overlooking a golf course where I was under a tree. And that entire month, eight to 10 hours a day, I was under that tree. God does something to a man or woman when he pulls them out of everything and sets him under a tree and says, don't read your Bible. Don't do anything. Just sit there. You're in timeout. And that's where I sat for a month, in timeout. And at the end of the month, praying, a call came. And they said, you've been selected as the new director of the gate. How soon can you get here? Within the next two weeks, my house is packed. My daughter, my wife, and myself were moved to Washington, D.C. And I started as the director of the gate. From there, he moved me to a little congregation of about six people. They'd had a huge church fight. Everybody had left the church. The sanctuary would seat 300, and there were six people in the congregation for me to preach to. And the president said, go and build up that church now like you build up the gate. I built that church up until finally we were standing room only, jammed, weekend after weekend, we began holding all-night prayer meetings as we prayed for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we said, Lord, no matter what you have to do, send your Holy Spirit. And we set a date out of my prayer time when I believed the Lord was going to send the Holy Spirit to that church. And that night we held an all-night prayer meeting, waiting on the Holy Spirit. And the next day, we thought nothing had happened, and I received a phone call from the bishop saying, Ray, we're moving you to another church as an associate pastor where we hope you can learn how to be an appropriate pastor. They said, you need to be retrained. You can't hold all-night prayer meetings. You can't pray for the Holy Spirit in our denomination. We don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit. So I was moved to Dayton, Ohio. And I said, the Lord has left me. I was utterly devastated. I was in this church for just a very short time. They gave me an opportunity one weekend to preach. And of course, you can guess what I preached on. I preached on repentance and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the next day, I got a phone call saying, you're fired. You can't preach like that in our church. What I didn't know was that the Lord put me in timeout again. And for the next 30 days, I was on my knees from morning until dark before the Lord, saying, Lord, have you left me? And all he would say to me was, you're on timeout. And I waited on the Lord. And at the end of the 30 days, he said, go back to Washington, D.C. That's where I told you to go. I didn't tell you to leave. So I came back to Washington, D.C., I was offered another congregation in that denomination. And I said, no, this time I'm firing the bishop. I knew at that point that God was demanding that I leave that denomination. And the result was I was completely shunned by that church. And by the friends I had made in that congregation. I'd served at that point nine years in that denomination. And I was so disheartened and so discouraged, so devastated by what had happened to me up to that point in ministry that I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to be a different kind of pastor. I'd been listening to Robert Shuler, and I said, he's being successful. I'm going to do what he does. So I went to his workshop in California. I came back, and I started a positive thinking church. Sandy Kane became a member of that church from television advertisements. And together we built a very successful congregation. But my heart was so broken. Presence of God was not with me until I came to a point where I said, is there even a God? I totally left the holiness background. I left the searching after the Holy Spirit. I was utterly discouraged and broken I said, I can't do this anymore, but at least I can help people be successful in their lives. And so I did the whole positive thinking church, the sinner-friendly church. And then one, one weekend, my church staff, we had five paid staff, my church staff and some of the other lay leaders in the church wanted to do a weekend retreat. So they all went off on this weekend retreat. And when they came back, I discovered that they had all gone skinny dipping together. And I was utterly devastated. I said, Lord, what kind of church have I raised up? It is utterly ungodly, and I am ungodly too. And I lay broken before the Lord, pleading, 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 that he would take me back. The Lord said to me, After a year and a half of agonizing prayer. This is not my church. It's yours. Close it. Went to the elders of the church. The the board of the church. And I said to the elders. The Lord has told me to close this church. I need your help and I need your agreement. Read with me. And we began to parcel out. Five families to this pastor, five families to this pastor, five families to this church. Until every person in that church had been invited and had visited another congregation. Many of these pastors said to me, Ray, you're crazy. It's not easy to build a church. I said, no, you're wrong. It's very easy to build a church in the flesh. It's hard to build a church in the spirit. The church was closed. Do you recognize what happens to a pastor when a church is closed? There's no salary. At this point in my life, I was making over $100,000. Suddenly, I was making nothing. It took the Lord seven years to strip out all of the money I had, to take retirement, to take houses, cars, savings, Took him seven years, but he finally got me down, my wife and I making tomato soup out of the ketchup, eating all the condiments, and finally having nothing left and saying, we're going to lay on our faces before God, and they're going to have to come into this house and find our dead bodies. We are not going to turn aside from you, Lord. We are going to wait on you until we die or you answer us. So there was a repo order on the car. There was an eviction notice from the house. The utilities were being shut off. We were at the end. That's where the Lord stepped in. and He began to speak. And I did what the Lord told me to do. And you know what he said? Go back to Washington, D.C. That's where I told you to go. I didn't tell you to leave. I said, Lord, we'll go. But it was $3,000 to move with a haul truck. They were very expensive at that time because everyone was moving out of California to the east. We came back to Washington, D.C. And I thought, okay, now the Lord's ready to open a house. And he's ready to open a church. He wasn't. Seven years with no public ministry. Waiting on God. No money. Except what he would give us. Many nights, being so terrified I couldn't go to sleep, all I could do was pray. Because he'd made me take a vow that I would not ask anybody for money, and I would not tell anybody about my personal needs. I would only pray and wait on him. That's what I did. I won't tell you the rest of the story. But he said, come to Woodbridge, and I'll meet you there, and the National Prayer Chapel will be established there. And that's when Pastor David Wilkerson from the Times Square Church stepped in and funded a house for us and helped us fund the opening of the National Prayer Chapel. Now, I tell you all of this as an introduction to this story in the sixth chapter of the book of Judges. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Seven years, they were on timeout. Seven years without the blessing of God, waiting on God. Please, please try to hear me. I'm talking here about your life. If you look back at your past, you will see the hand of God moved in your life to deliver you at very key times. And that if he had not delivered you at that key time, you would not be here today. You would have lost your confidence in him. You would have been utterly crushed. And you would have turned aside to darkness. And you would have been swept away under the judgment of Satan. Now, some of you today are in disciplinary, prescriptive timeout. You're struggling with your jobs. You're struggling with finances. You're struggling with the family. It's timeout. It's the trial that's spoken of. Israel, time after time, would do evil against the Lord. He would come and discipline them by putting them in timeout. And now it says, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Have any of you heard of a bug-out bag? It's a very common phrase today. It's all over the Internet. They're saying everybody in America should have a bug-out bag. Well, what's a bug-out bag? It's a bag packed and ready with some food bars in it, some water in it, a change of clothing in it, a pair of hiking shoes in it. It's the basic things you need to quickly grab and run from your house when you have to flee because of civil disturbance and unrest because of catastrophic events happening in the nation. Even FEMA is telling us, prepare and have six months of food stashed in your house. Be prepared to survive for six months without going to the grocery store. Our government is telling us this. Do you have any clue what will happen if this Elboa disease breaks out in America? they will quarantine a whole area and say you cannot go in or out of that area. And if there's no grocery store in your area, you will starve to death. They will not let you out. This is what was happening to the children of Israel. They were making for themselves little hidey caves so that when these foreigners came in with their armies, they could flee their homes and go to their country place hidden away in a cave with some food stashed there so they could survive. I know we're Americans. We don't think this can ever happen here because we're the blessed ones of God. You think the children of Israel were not the blessed ones of God? You think this can't happen here? Some of you probably don't have enough food to survive beyond a week, and that'd be stretching it because you're You don't have any belief that this could happen, that the electricity could suddenly go off and you wouldn't have any running water. What would you do for water? Some of you have no water in your house except that which comes out of the tap. What happens if the tap goes dry? The government is telling us it will go dry. They're saying we don't know when, but the grid will come down in America and it may be 30 days. It may be 60 days before any water flows again. Where will you get water? Well, the children of Israel were making those preparations. These Amalekites would come in and camp on the land. They would ruin the crops. They did not spare a living thing for Israel. They stole their sheep. They stole their cattle. They took their donkeys. They came like a swarm of locusts upon the land. They said, it's impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land. They ravish it. They so impoverished the children of Israel that they finally began to just cry out to God for deliverance. Verse 7. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of your oppressors. I drove them from before you, and I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. I'm so grateful that wasn't God's last word. What should God's last word be on your life? Do you deserve his kindness? Do you deserve the mercy of God? I have to tell you today, I don't. I don't deserve the forgiveness of God for my sins. I deserve to have this prophetic word spoken over my life. That's why he's had to put me in time out so many times. Then the Lord came. It says the angel of the Lord, but all angel means is messenger. It's literally, it's the pre-incarnate Christ. It's Jesus who comes. And he doesn't come as a warrior. He comes as a friend and he sits down under the oak. He sits down, he, he walks up and he sits down and here right in front of him is Gideon. And he's threshing wheat. He's threshing wheat in a wine press. Because the foreigners are not going to think anybody's in the wine press because the grapes are not ripe. So they would never think of coming to the vineyard. Usually they thresh the wheat up on the top of the hill where the wind would blow away the chaff. So the Lord comes and sits down and he watches. I wonder how long he watched Gideon work. I wonder how long Gideon was aware that he was there. I want to tell you something. The Lord has come and sit down outside of your house. He's come as a friend. He has not come as your judge. He's come as your friend. He wants to talk to you. Revelation says that he's standing outside and he's knocking on your door. And if you hear and you open, he'll come in and he'll eat with you, which is the symbol of family and friendship. He's not come as your enemy. He's not come as your judge. He's come and he's knocking on your door. Just like he did with Gideon. When finally Gideon gave him his attention, Jesus said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Would you call Gideon a mighty warrior? I wouldn't. Could we shut the door back there, Sandy, please? I would not call Gideon a mighty warrior. By any stretch of the imagination he's afraid of the enemy. He's afraid to be up on the top where the wind will blow. He's hiding away from the enemy. There is no bravery in him. But the Lord is saying, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But Sir Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why is all this happening? Where are all the wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. If today there's any part of your heart that says that Jesus is an enemy, you've missed him. He is not your enemy. He is your friend. He comes in love. Comes in mercy. And you know what? I'm even afraid to tell you that. Can I tell you why? I read this week the first part of the diary of David Brenner. A side note that you may not know is that he was in love with Jonathan Edwards' daughter. He was 27 years old. He wanted to marry her. But he had so broken his body down by preaching to the Indians. And by his constant prayer and crying out to God. That Jonathan Edwards, his wife and his daughter, took care of him as he died. He died in his 20s. And in those few short years, he shook the world more than almost any other single man ever has. And he did it by prayer. And by simply doing what the Lord told him to do. And as I read this journal, there was a constant drumbeat to this journal that makes me even fearful of saying what I'm saying to you today. He would preach to the Indians. And then he'd go back and preach to his people. And then the next day he'd go and preach to the Indians once or twice. He would walk hundreds of miles. He would sleep out in the open. He only had what he would carry with him. His constant drumbeat was. I I am beginning to see a little bit of concern among the Indians for their soul. And I'm fearful what I'm telling you today could cause you to even deepen your lack of concern for your soul. So what I'm trying to say to you is that Jesus is coming to you as a friend, but he is coming to you as a friend because he is deeply concerned about your soul's salvation. He's not coming as your friend to be permissive with you. He is coming as your friend to deal with the disease of sin that has infected our souls. And he wants to remove that by his blood. So please, as I speak with with kindness and with mercy, don't mistake that for permissive acceptance of rebellion against Jesus. Jesus came to Gideon to say, you're a mighty warrior, when he was not a mighty warrior. But he was going to become a mighty warrior. And that's the part I want you to catch today. The Lord answers his accusations. Any of you have any accusations against the Lord today? The way he's treated you? The timeout he's put you in? The Lord answers, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least of my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. The call of the Lord is on your life. It is on the National Prayer Chapel. The call of the Lord is to open revival in Washington, D.C. Now, I'm here to confess to you, I cannot bring revival, and I cannot save Washington, D.C. I have seen the finest pastors and preachers in our nation come and do great marches on the mall, and Washington, D.C., yawns. I've heard all the hype. I've listened to all of the hype. I used to believe it. I don't anymore. I yawn with Washington and they say, oh, we're going to have this wonderful series of meetings and the Holy Spirit is going to come in power. And pastor, would you bring your church and would you get excited about this? And, and would you get volunteers for us? And I say, no, not interested. Yawn. Why? Because we have no power until Jesus comes and gives us the power. Gideon was exactly right. He could do nothing to deliver Israel. He was a coward. He was hiding away. He had no strength. But the Lord said, go in the little strength that you have. There's not one of you in this room that does not have a little strength. And if you are going to go in the strength you have, Jesus is going to have to come and couple his strength With your strength. And I tell you what, this will only happen in the prayer closet. And prayer eats up your time. At first, when you go into the prayer closet, you will say, Pastor, I prayed for 10 minutes and I ran out of everything I could say and I said it twice. So what do I do? And then you're going to be in the prayer closet and you're going to doze off to sleep. And you're going to come and say to me, Pastor, why should I pray that long? when I'm just going to go to sleep. And I'm going to say to you, because the Lord knows you're tired and you need a nap. I'd rather sleep in the presence of the Lord than anywhere else I can think of. And as you sit before the Lord and you begin to fellowship with him, over a period of time, your soul becomes enlightened. Prayer is a detergent for your soul. You can't gossip against somebody you're crying out to God to save. You can't criticize somebody your heart is being poured out with tears for their salvation. You can't hate someone who has mistreated you if your heart is crying out for them. So as you're in that prayer closet and you're waiting before God, suddenly your telephone rings. Now you have to decide. Is God or Bob more important? Somebody actually had the nerve. I forgive them. They had the nerve to text me this morning and say, Pastor, I can't be with you today in church because I have some personal things I need to take care of. I will say to this person later, So you had to choose between your personal things and Jesus. And you chose your personal things. Now, please talk to me. Will Jesus choose his personal things over you? Jesus will treat you the way you treat him. As we recognize our weakness, even hiding away, because we know we can't defeat the enemy. We can't defeat the sin that comes so constantly against us. We can't defeat the powers of darkness that block up the finances. We can't we can not break through this barrier. It is impossible. We'll be killed if we try. We just can't do it. That's when we go into the prayer closet. And that's where we say, Jesus, I don't have any strength. Will you come in your power? Will you come with your Holy Spirit? Will you come and touch your people once again? Now, please, if you hear the Holy Spirit calling you, you're going to have to walk away from a lot that's even good in your life. You're going to find there is a call of the Spirit saying, come follow me and don't go to that darkness. Don't go out for that entertainment. You're going to say, come and follow me. Walk with me. You're going to be criticized. You're going to be judged. You're going to have enemies. I have friends that I've not been able to be in touch with for some time. And I think of them and my heart is sorrowful. But I recognize I could not fellowship with Jesus the way he's calling me into the prayer closet. And also have time to be with these dear friends. And I had to make a decision that I would rather be with Jesus. And I would rather wait before him. Because I know that if the breakthrough comes and revival is poured out, these dear friends will be one with me. And then we'll fellowship in Jesus and not with him having a bud. I've tried to talk to him about Jesus. He wouldn't hear it. He liked his alcohol. He liked his party life. He liked the world. I can't fellowship with him and enjoy his fellowship. Until the power of the Holy Spirit comes. So that when I talk to him about Jesus, his heart is broken and he's convicted. And he says, yes, Ray, I want to come and walk with you. Gideon, he asks for a sign. Okay, God, I'll follow. I'm asking for a sign. Would you wait while I go prepare some food? I'm sure he was thinking. If we eat together, then I'll know for sure that we're friends. The God of heaven, the creator of heaven and earth. The king of the universe sits and cools his heels. Well, this man goes and takes a goat and prepares it for a meal. Butchers it and prepares it for a meal. He goes and bakes the bread and he makes the broth. And he brings this wonderful meal out to God. And God says, okay, put it on the rock. He puts it on the rock And Jesus says, pour the broth out on top of it. He pours the broth over this fresh baked bread, touches it with his staff, and immediately it flames into fire. And in the flames of fire, the Lord ascends to heaven. And now Gideon knows he's talking to God, and he's terrified. He says, I've seen the face of God. I'm going to die. And the Lord said, unseen, said to him, peace be with you. You're not going to die. Do you know what the word shalom actually means? We usually interpret it as peace. That's not the literal meaning of the word shalom. The literal meaning of the word shalom is safe. You are safe. So he's saying, Gideon, you're safe. You're safe. Some of you need to hear today that you're safe. You have every threatening thing around you. You don't know where it's going to come from. You don't know what the steps will be. You need to hear Jesus Christ saying to you, safe. You're not going to die. He didn't bring you this far to die. He didn't bring you this far to let you be swept away in your sin. He brought you this far to set you free to release you, your power. I hope you get it today. I've gotten it. I know I have no power. I have no power to convince you. I have no power to convict you. I have no power to do anything but take the little strength I have and share with you the word of God. And if Jesus doesn't quicken that word of God in your heart, you will walk away hard-hearted and arrogant and filled with darkness. Only Jesus can remove that from our hearts. I know I don't have the power to touch Washington. If I could, it would probably kill me. Just like Herod did John the Baptist. I'd be beheaded. hope you understand today. Salvation has nothing in it of human strength, except that little bit of strength that you have. You have that quickening of the Holy Spirit in your heart that says go after Jesus and if you will go after Jesus with that little bit of strength you have don't use that little bit of strength you have to try to make some money don't use that little bit of strength you have to try to survive don't try to use that little bit of strength you have to protect yourself from everybody use that little bit of strength that you have to go after Jesus. And when his power is coupled together with your little bit of strength, nothing is impossible to you. We're going to have a baptism today. I can't think of anything more dangerous that these men and women could possibly do than what they have said they will do. To make a covenant with Jesus is to put a bullseye on your back. And the devil has open season. And the only way you can survive is use the little bit of strength you have to go after Jesus. That's where the power is. And Jesus will immediately begin to allow the devil to test your heart. And for every one of you being baptized today, the test will be a little different. Mighty God of heaven, king of all the earth, I do not have the power to guide my steps. I do not have the power to win the lost. I do not have the power to cast out demons. I don't have the power or the strength to build a great church. But Lord, the little bit of power that I have, I seek after you with all my heart and ask that your power be released in its fullness for this city. I ask that you give us the humility to come before you and confess our brokenness our pride, our anger, our rejection, our hurts, and know that those are only healed by your precious blood. I hear your call, Jesus, to come and follow you, and it is taking me far away from where I am comfortable. But when you love someone, Lord, you'll go wherever they go. And, Lord, I love you because you first loved me and showed me who you are. Lord, I covenant with you today to follow you, to be your servant, you are my master.
3: Thank you for joining us today. You've been
2: listening to Pilgrim's Progress. It's brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel. We're located in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our mailing address is Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Come visit us at nationalprayerchapel.com.
1: God bless you. We love you.
3: I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm To gleam of glory bright, but still I'll pray till heaven I find. Lord, lead me on to higher ground.